from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Uh, you know, I know I say sometimes that, well, this episode's going to be a real treat, but I mean, this one really is going to be a treat. And I'll tell you why. Uh, back, this goes back a ways uh, to when I was a young assistant professor at Princeton and had written a few articles about the drug war being totally out of control and doing more harm than good. And this mayor, a young mayor in Baltimore, pops out saying somewhat the same sorts of things. That's our guest today. His name is Kurt Schmoke. He's currently the president of the University of Baltimore. Before that, he was a dean of Howard Law School. He held a range of other positions. Um, but he was also the chief prosecutor of Baltimore in the 1980s and then got elected mayor in late 1987, served three terms until 1999 uh, in Baltimore. Uh, and, uh, you know, really uh, garnered national attention with a very brave thing that he did back then. So, Kurt, thanks so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Oh, great to be with you, Ethan. And uh, I guess my biggest claim to fame is that I read your articles while I was mayor. So that well, uh, <laughs> yeah. helped a great deal. <laughs> well, it's very generous of you. But, I, 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 you know, as I reflected on it, Kurt, I also think that but for your having stepped out, I, I think my life might have been totally different. Now, for the first thing I have to say, you know, I was thinking time does fly. And we're talking about 1988. 
It was a period when the drug war was in a period of national hysteria in America. Number one issue in public opinion polls, uh, you know, just, you know, both Democrats and Republicans jumping on the drug war bandwagon. It wasn't just Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and all the Republicans. It was Jesse Jackson, the most prominent African-American political leader in America at that time. Charlie Rangel, the influential Harlem congressman who was chairing the House Select Committee on Narcotics, but really just, I mean, there was almost a national consensus behind something I've oftentimes talked about as as basically McCarthyism on steroids. You know, I, at that time, I write this article in Foreign Policy magazine saying the drug wars failed, it's a bust, the title was U.S. Drug Policy, a Bad Export. A few weeks later, there's a, The Economist magazine, the famous British magazine, comes out with an editorial saying more or less the same thing, and maybe even going further in terms of embracing full legalization, which I'd been hedging on. And that gets a little attention. And then I'm sitting in my office, it's the, you know, in my first year teaching at Princeton, and I get a phone call from some reporter, I think in Baltimore, saying, uh, so do you have any comments about what our new mayor just said? And I said, what did he say? He said, well, you better see this. He stood up at the National Conference of Mayors. They were having a joint meeting with the police chiefs of America, and he basically slammed the hell out of the drug war and said, we need to put all options on the table. So, Kurt, okay, I'm bringing you back. It's it's (laughs) April 1988. You've been elected mayor five months before after serving as chief prosecutor of Baltimore for many years. What was it that prompted you to do that absolutely outrageous, um, but also extraordinarily courageous thing? Well, thanks very much, uh, Ethan, for taking us a little bit down memory lane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it does set a context. Yeah, I had been a, a prosecutor, actually um, eight years a prosecutor, uh, three as an assistant U.S. attorney, and then five as the chief prosecutor, the state's attorney in Baltimore. And as uh, you recall, I had a good friend of mine who was working undercover as a, a police officer who was uh, killed. And uh, during that was the, uh, Mar- Marcellus Ward, right? Yeah, Marty Ward. And um, and uh, it was uh, unfortunately a, a botched uh, drug uh, operation. They were trying to uh, capture a guy who was uh, uh, transporting drugs from New York and um the uh, the person who was uh, the recipient in Baltimore, uh, unfortunately, figured out that Marty was a police officer, uh, shot and and killed him. And Marty was wearing a uh, body wire at the time. So as state's attorney, I had to listen to his um, his death and to make a decision about how I was going to prosecute. And at that time, uh, Maryland had a death penalty law and had to decide whether to seek the death penalty or not. But in any event, Marty's death started uh, to, for me, started to trigger a lot of um, thinking about the, uh, about the drug war. And I had an opportunity. Uh, I was invited to be a speaker at this joint uh, meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors and National Chiefs of Police. A speech was written for me. I took a you know, a look at it. And I decided, nope, I'm not going to give this, you know, traditional speech. And I um, took a look at a memoir that the uh, chaplain at Yale University wrote a memoir uh, and had, it was entitled Once to Every Man. It's based on a, a hymn of the, the church. And the hymn goes, you know, once to every man comes a moment to decide. And then uh, I, I thought about it for a while and I said, uh, this is my moment. <laughs> uh, am I going to do the traditional? Or am I going to tell them what I really uh, think and and hopefully start a debate? And that's what I was trying to do in the, the speech. I said we ought to debate the question of whether we should decriminalize drugs. And uh, by the time I got back from Washington, where the speech was, you know, it's only 45 minutes away from Baltimore, but uh, by the time I got back, uh, the AP was running uh, a headline, uh, Baltimore Mayor Supports Legalizing Drugs. Um, so well, that uh, started me in, in, involved in a discussion that continued for the 12 years uh, that I was in office and beyond. Yes, yeah, that's for sure. Now, I think it's important for our listeners to realize that back in 1988, You know, what happened was if you just called for a debate about the harms that the drug war was doing, 
you were more or less instantly labeled a legalizer and conflated with a libertarian legalizer. And so that attack that, Kurt, you're out there arguing for legalizing, uh, it was very hard. When that onslaught came in the media, uh, you know, what, what, what was your first reaction? I knew that there would be strong reaction uh, locally. I didn't realize that I would be involved in a firestorm uh, throughout the uh, uh, the country. I knew the, the how the local reaction was going to uh, uh, play out. And the, and the reason was in, in 1988, there was a consensus throughout the country that uh, the drug problem was primarily a crime problem and that the way to uh, address it was through the criminal justice system. Uh, and locally, uh, for me in, in Baltimore, I could tell, uh, having talked to uh, my constituents, uh, white, black, um, uh, we did not have a large uh, Latino population at the time. It's primarily whites and blacks in, in Baltimore. And to a person, they uh, believe that uh, we should solve this problem, more police, more incarceration, that that was the best way to do it. So just even raising the question about an alternative uh, seemed totally heretical. And um, I had a number of people that wanted me to you know, go to the train station and be under the train uh, at the time. Uh, but, you know, through a, a great deal of conversation, the back and forth, you know, slowly but surely people's minds began to change. But, you know, one thing I did learn in the process is that one of the reasons that uh, a number of uh, national figures, Congress people, for example, who supported a debate one of the reasons they didn't say anything is that they run every two years. And so it's so easy to demonize uh, a person. And uh, I had the luxury of having a four-year term so I could mm -hmm. talk to people about this over uh, you know the, the next three and a half years before I faced re-election. And that made all the difference in the world. Well, yeah, you know, and I'll say it. I mean, obviously, these memories are going to be even more vivid for me than for you because it plays such a prominent role in my life. But, you know, I'm 31, you know, assistant professor finishing my first year at Princeton teaching. You're 38, barely into your first year as mayor. And I remember our first conversation. Um, you and I had both been invited to go on Nightline, Ted Koppel's Nightline show, which was the most famous and widely watched, you know, TV political show, you know, really in the late 20th century in America. And we were going to be debating Charlie Rangel, the, you know, Harlem congressman who was yeah. saying that what we were saying was outlandish. And soon you and I had a preliminary talk. And the first time we actually saw one another was actually on camera uh, <laughs> in May 1988 for that Nightline episode, you and I debating, debating Rangel. But what I'm curious about is, did you ever contemplate walking it back? I mean, you must have lots of advisors saying, Kurt, roll this thing back. I mean, you know, you got to go. This is going to destroy your political career. This is going to be whatever. Did you ever consider that? No. Once I was out there, I knew that, uh, uh, you know, I, I had made an important decision. I, and I certainly knew that I had made a career decision that I had cut off some options uh, for myself in terms of a uh, uh, future political career. But I believe very strongly uh, in this. It was uh, tearing our community apart. And uh, I knew that the status quo wasn't acceptable. So there had to be a different way. What I didn't know at the time, uh, and and I did criticize myself for this, um, I should have initially proposed an alternative approach. It was much later that I started, you know, learning about what was happening, you know, with the Dutch and and the Portuguese and things like that, and what was going on in Zurich that there, there, in fact, were alternatives. Except um, though, many of those barely existed back in 88, you know? Right. I mean, even talking about a kinder, gentler drug war, which was a little bit about what we were doing. I mean, you may not know this, but um, this past summer, I had a very precocious kid named Joey Kaufman, who was my intern for the podcast. And he got an interest in the drug issue in part 
because he was in some contest. The Kennedy Library in Boston does this Profiles in Courage contest um, where, you know, high school kids pick out somebody and write an essay about them. And actually, you were very generously agreed. You, you let Joey yep. interview you last year. Yep. He wrote a very good essay. It turned out nobody had ever submitted your name for Profiles of Courage before. <laughs> but this past year, in fact, two of the 15 semifinalists were both essays about you, Kurt Schmoke, at the Kennedy Center. Oh, that's, So, I, I mean, it's nice that. to know that, you know, <laughs> there's a new generation coming up that can kind of look back and pre- appreciate the courage that you showed in, in doing what you did back then. No, I certainly didn't uh, know that. And uh, as I said, you know, what I was trying to do was to uh, stimulate uh, or provoke a debate. I, I just knew what we were doing then was not working. And it, not only wasn't it working, it was causing more harm uh, than good, but I really uh, didn't have a solution. But at the time that I was <laughs> being criticized uh, for my statements, I kept uh, thinking about a, a quote from Mario Cuomo. Uh, uh, then Governor Cuomo uh, once said that a uh, politician must distinguish between ideas that sound good and ideas that are good and sound. And I just criticized myself for not um, uh, having a a good and sound alternative to the war on drugs at the time that I made the critique. Right. Well, I mean, look, let's get into this a bit, because when I'm thinking back to that period, you know, you and I go on Nightline, it's May 1988, and you were in some respects becoming nationally known, you know, people are going, you know, what's that Mayor Schmoke been smoking or smoking or something like that. Um, But, you know, then I remember I was on Larry King debating uh, Senator D'Amato, the Republican senator from New York. Uh, You were on hundreds of TV shows. You and I both ended up on Donahue, the New York Times, Washington Post, Front Page, Time Magazine, Newsweek. I mean, the major media media outlets all in the midst of all their drug war coverage, they took a little break to say, and here's a small host of characters who are stepping out. And now we weren't alone. I mean, the fact of the matter is you and I were the two most prominent people stepping out. But there was a few police chiefs, former police chief Joe McNamara, who had been in Kansas City and San Jose, Anthony Booza. So we weren't totally alone on this stuff. Yet on the other side, I mean, it was just monumental opposition. You know, Ted Koppel decides after having us on a few months later to do a big multi-hour town halls. I mean, imagine national television, major network, a three-hour, four-hour special on this issue. And you and I are on there. I think you were on by video, and I was on there. William Buckley, the Commissioner of Customs, Jesse Jackson. Then they brought on a whole host of other characters, including Charlie Rangel and Alan Dershowitz and you name it. And I remember I'm sitting between Jesse Jackson and Charlie Rangel. And I hear one of them say to the other, boy, that's a one-term mayor if I've ever seen one. Right. And I kind of say, I said, don't, don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. And then there was, of course, the congressional hearing that happened in that fall where Charlie Rangel, you had called for congressional hearings. Charlie Rangel felt obliged to have a hearing. As you might expect, he loaded the entire first two hours when the cameras were there with all the antis, gave you a brief moment while interrupting you. But in all of that, did you have any direct relationships? I mean, did, did Rangel and you ever speak directly apart from on the media? Did Jesse Jackson and you ever speak directly? Did other prominent American politicians at the time? ever speak directly with you about the issue? Uh, not in that uh, first uh, three and a half years after, huh. you know, after uh, my uh, statement. In fact, uh, my, my congressman um, who, you know, a, a protocol when you have hearings in Washington, uh, your congressman or senator usually introduces you. And my congressman then, uh, Kwasi Nfumi, uh, did... Uh, let them know my name, but he spent most of the time uh, making sure they they understood that he didn't share my views uh, on uh, uh, the the issue. The only time uh, I talked to any of the national politicians was in a debate type setting. Um, mm-hmm. No kind of quiet um, a discussion, you know, or somebody saying to me, you know, what what do you mean by this? Uh, because 
as you recall, the country and the national political scene was moving towards um, a crime bill that was going to be very, very harsh. So there was still basically a feeling uh, that we can prosecute our way out of this problem. And it just needed, you know, more police resources, more incarceration, more mm -hmm. for the DEA. Um, so there was not uh, an opportunity for m a much uh, debate. And, and I must say, that, Ethan, uh, looking back on it, I remember going on uh, the, some of those national TV shows, and I, I just felt that we really weren't having a discussion uh, that in some way uh, we're just being kind of ambushed <laughs> on the programs. And so I had one invitation several months into my discussion from a young woman in Chicago named Oprah Winfrey, who uh -huh. was having a, a, a show about this. And much to my chagrin, I turned down that invitation. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, well, but, the one that I remember. Was, well, was the, one you, the one you didn't turn down was Phil Donahue. And yeah. for our listeners to understand, Phil Donahue was the most prominent talk show host back for decades. And you and yeah. I are there. I remember Lester Grinspoon from Harvard Medical School was on there. And I remember, you know, both of us were struggling to find the right language to talk about this, yes. right? You know, That's you didn't correct. want to talk about legalization. To some extent, I didn't like the language of legalization either, although people kept tagging me because people instantly associated it with a free-for-all and a free market. And, you know, you'd be talking about decriminalization. Sometimes you, you know, try to get into the medicalization language. Right. And I remember that Donahue show. Somebody, I don't know whether Donahue, who was on our side, but maybe he was provoking you or some of the audience. And all of a sudden, you started going in with the analogies to alcohol prohibition. And you started sounding kind of radical. Uh, uh, and I, I mean, I could see it was always, you know, on the one hand, you understood that most of this was a problem created by prohibition. But I remember worrying about you at that Donahue show. I said, boy, Kurt's getting more heat than I've ever seen him. He's getting more radical than I've ever heard him. But when I think about your struggling with to finding the right words and the right language to put your views out there, do you recall your evolution or your thoughts about that at the time? Well, I do, um, because I was getting a bit frustrated that people weren't engaging in debate. They were just uh, throwing conclusions at me. And, and I was trying to uh, come up with a way that would get folks to really see that there were multiple sides uh, to this problem, that it wasn't uh, just strictly a crime uh, problem. And, you know, and I recall... Um, at one of those shows saying that 400,000 people died last year from smoking cigarettes and uh, there were no known deaths uh, recorded for smoking marijuana, just for inhaling uh, marijuana. And uh, of course, somebody got up from the audience and said that his daughter had died by an automobile accident of somebody who was smoking marijuana and, and drove into her. And I, that was completely different point, but uh, it got, you know, applause and uh, people, you know, failing to really hear what I was I was trying to say. And over time, Ethan, I came up with this idea of going to uh, what I thought would be skeptical audiences and asking them three questions. And that that's how I, I, I came to that of uh you know, going in and not saying, I want to talk to you about uh, reform uh, right now, I'd simply go to the audience and I'd say, do you think that we've won the war on drugs? Do you think that we're winning? Do you think that doing more of the same over the next decade will win the war on drugs? And I said, if you can't answer uh, a yes to any of those questions, would you consider uh, alternatives? We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. I think you also maybe were the originator of the line, if we're going to have a war on drugs, it should be headed not by the attorney general, but by the surgeon general. Yep. That I was did. a good one. That was good. Yeah. But, you, but you did reference the prohibition analogy from time to time. Oh, I did. Right? That was one way of getting people uh, to, to understand it. it. I find, though, that uh, the prohibition analogy has become more credible in the 21st century mm-hmm. uh, with the opioid problem. More and more Americans are seeing neighbors like themselves with a drug problem. So I, I see more of an acceptance of the uh, that analogy uh, uh, now than I did what way back in 1988. Well, now, you know, apart from... Um, the national stage, where it's obvious these guys were not talking with you directly, um, locally, they had to be talking with you directly. Right. And you were dealing with members of your cabinet. You were dealing with leaders of the black churches, I think, including one you're related to. Um, you're dealing with law enforcement. So, you know, what was it like dealing with folks in Baltimore in those early years? Well, fortunately for me, I had two really outstanding health commissioners, uh, Dr. Maxie Collier um, and then Dr. Uh, Peter Bielinson. And uh, both of them were very supportive of uh, the idea of treating this as a public health problem rather than a criminal justice problem. They were strong advocates for uh, public health uh, intervention and they uh, helped me to uh, come up with some ideas that I could present uh, to uh, our local legislators about a, a different approach uh, to uh, the problem. And as you know, Ethan, and I, I began to explain to uh, local legislators that um, when we talked about the drug problem, it wasn't just a, a matter of addiction. Uh, yes, there's the criminal aspect, but also uh, AIDS was a huge issue. And I uh, indicated that, you know, with the help of our public health commissioners, that one of the things that we could do to address the AIDS issue was to have a needle exchange, a sterile syringe exchange program in Baltimore. And that is how I started to engage uh, state and local elected officials, because our health commissioner um, and I really wanted to 
have this uh, needle exchange program to reduce the spread of, of AIDS in Baltimore. And we felt that we could do it without increasing uh, drug use. But that was a discussion that we uh, had to have with uh, state legislators because there was a state law that mm-hmm. prevented having a needle exchange program. Um, and it, it, you know, again, took us three years to convince people to give us the uh, pilot authorization for a pilot uh, program. But without mm-hmm. the help of our health commissioners, I, I'm not sure I could have ever uh, persuaded them. People were skeptical. Most folks thought that this was a, a crime problem. But it, it took uh, quite a while to persuade uh, even my own staff that this was a direction that we should go in. And uh, once again, without uh, Maxie Collier, Dr. Collier, and Dr. Bielinson, it would have been an uphill battle for me. What about the church leaders? Were you, were you yeah. getting invited in to explain yourself uh, at, at churches in Baltimore? I, I was. I was getting invited to the churches. The ministers were generally opposed. I had some small support for the idea of of reform because there were two things that were going on. One, they were starting to see this increase in incarceration of black men and the disruption that that was causing to uh, family life. So that was a concern. And then a number of people indicated that they were burying, uh, they were, you know, having more funerals for younger and younger people because of AIDS. And Mm -hmm. so those two things started to get uh, some, you know, different thinking on this. But generally, uh, I was invited to just to to give my point of view. Uh, So that was important that they would at least let me come in to uh, have conversations, even when they disagreed. And and ultimately, though, uh, as you know, Ethan, it was because of a change in opinion of the leading clergy organization uh, in town after about three years of debate that they came down with me to Annapolis to testify in favor of giving us the authority to have a needle exchange program. It had a huge impact uh, on the legislators and was one of the reasons that we were able to get that pilot uh, program implemented. Yeah. Well, you know, so now we were not alone back then in another sense, apart from the small handful, barely one handful of, uh, of other elected leaders and others who were stepping out. There was the creation of an organization called the the Drug Policy Foundation. I remember their first meeting I went to in London in 1987, founded by Arnold Treback, who was an uh, academic uh, at American University, and he was he had been born in the late uh, twenty uh, late twenties, and he's older than us. And then the other his partner in this was Kevin Zeese, and a lawyer who had been the uh, briefly the head of Normal in earlier years. And they organized the Drug Policy Foundation. I remember that first conference in 1988 in D.C. See, uh, there actually were a few members of Congress, and they help bring together academics. They bring uh, some emerging activists. People came in from Europe who were beginning to introduce the harm reduction ideas in in Liverpool and the Netherlands, et cetera, like that. And I, Kurt, I'll tell you, um, I actually was scrolling around last night online, and I found your speech to that first conference is on C-SPAN. You <laughs> oh can my. dig it out. In fact, I had introduced you. Um, and I remember you're saying, my God, this is like the first friendly audience, the first chance I get to to preach to the choir on all of this. So I imagine that must have felt nice to f- at least find some, you know, receptive company who regarded you, you know, like I did as a leader and a hero in all of this. Well, I, I don't recall exactly what I said, but I do uh, remember that it was <laughs> totally refreshing to actually have people talking about the pros and cons, the complexity of the uh, problem. That was uh, really refreshing rather than to have people take, you know, just one view and dismiss, you know, uh, an opposing view. Uh, mm-hmm. And like uh, you mentioned about the European situation uh, on needle exchange, we had the chief of police from Rotterdam mm-hmm. uh, come to testify uh, at our legislature and uh, to explain to people how his program uh, operated and, that, in fact, that it did not increase the number of people using drugs, nor did it increase crime in Rotterdam. And so, you know, getting the global perspective was extremely 
extremely important uh, in making some progress on drug policy reform in, in this area. Mm-hmm. Well, so let me bring up another issue here, which is that I remember later in 88, I get a phone call from a ex-former district attorney of Philadelphia, a guy named Ed Rendell. Uh, and Ed Rendell subsequently lands up running for mayor of Philadelphia, becoming two-time mayor of Philadelphia, governor, two-time governor of Pennsylvania, the head of the Democratic Governor Association. So he becomes very, very prominent. But in 1988, he had uh, just finished being DA. He was, you know, not particularly prominent. He calls me up. I'm at Princeton. And he says, you know, we're going to have a forum here in, I think, southeast Philly, the black part of Philly. And we have Kurt Schmoke coming, but he asked me to call you because he felt it would be good to have an ally there. And so you and I show up there, and it must have been 200, 250 people from that part of Philadelphia. I think I and one or two of the other speakers, it was an entirely black audience apart from us, and people were standing up there and saying, Mayor Schmoke, you bring that stuff to Philadelphia, we're going to run you out of here on a rail. (laughs) And when I look back, what I realize is that The language, you and I, I don't think you did, I don't think I did back in the late 80s, early 90s, we did not talk about this as a racial justice issue. Right. I mean, if you look at what Black Lives Matter, when, you know, one of the great things about Black Lives Matter is that when they emerged some years ago, and for me, it's this incredibly refreshing thing, because finally you have a kind of black, you know, new generation civil rights group that is embracing drug policy reform. And many of the arguments that they were saying were remarkably similar to what we had been saying back before they were born or when they were just, you know, infants. But we did not use the racial justice argument. And I know that in my case, you know, if I did, you know, it'd be like, what are you, you know, you white Princeton intellectual know? What do you know about drugs doing our community? The fact that you were out there as a black man, former chief prosecutor saying this was powerful, but I don't recall you framing this as a racial justice issue for at least the first number of years. I just want you to reflect on that for a bit. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And um, I guess I I won't say it was a failure uh, to raise that issue because I thought that what I was talking about, substantive change in uh, drug policy, was you know where I needed to to focus. But I was struck at a conference much later. This is after I I was um, out of office. I was actually dean at the Howard Law School, so that had to be 2004 or five. I was on a uh, program with Michelle Alexander, the mm-hmm. author of. Uh, the new, new Jim, Jim Crow. Crow. Yeah. And um, one of the statements that she made on the panel was that there were no uh, no African-American politicians uh, speaking about uh, the need to reform drug policy. And I kind of looked at the, the, the uh, moderator of the panel and uh, I didn't say anything. I said, well, maybe she meant somebody who was currently in office. But later on, it was clear to me that she was unaware of comments that I had made as mayor uh, because I didn't frame the issue in the way she uh, framed it most uh, succinctly and clearly uh, in Mm -hmm. her outstanding uh, book. But uh, I certainly didn't frame uh, the discussion in that uh, same way. But at the time, you know, I thought the most important thing was to get in people's mind those three questions, to get them the mm-hmm. question whether uh, the drug war made sense and whether they were open to consider some alternatives. Uh, yeah. That that was what I thought was most important at the time. Yeah. And I think one reason we didn't use the racial justice frame is because so many black leaders and others at that time would basically reject it. They were yeah. arguing that we need the drug war. We need more cops. We need more of this. And needle exchange is not the right thing in all of this. And yeah. so, I mean, you were dealing with that in Baltimore right in your face all the time. Well, that's correct. And when you look at the number of people, uh, particularly our congressmen, who voted for the 1994 crime bill, uh, although uh, so many of them 20 years later said they regretted it. But at mm-hmm. the time, they were reflecting the very strong views of their constituents. And they were looking at the drug problem as mainly a supply issue. That is, the drugs were being brought into the community. They were being supplied from 
others, uh, whether it was other countries or people from other states, and that law enforcement, if they really wanted to, if they really had the resources, could stop that supply. Mm -hmm. That was mm -hmm. that was the uh, primary uh, viewpoint, as opposed to looking at the appetite uh, for uh, the drugs, the demand uh, side, and we have proportionately very few resources going into dealing with demand and trying to get uh, people treatment. So at the time, uh, it was difficult to raise this as a, a racial justice uh, matter when uh, the consensus, white and black and, and others, was uh, it was a crime problem. Let's put mm -hmm. more resources into criminal justice. Slowly but surely it changed. Now, I want to bring up with you one little touchy issue that happened in 98, right? So now you're 11 years in office. You got one year to go. Peter Billinson is still your health commissioner, been doing a great job helping moving forward the harm reduction stuff. I organized a meeting in my offices in June 98, and it's a meeting about trying to get heroin prescription trials going in the U.S. Because by that time, first the switch and then, and then the Dutch and the Germans and others were starting programs like methadone maintenance, but allowing people for whom methadone didn't work to come into a clinic, uh, like a high-end methadone clinic, and get pharmaceutical heroin. And you had been out there publicly put, putting that out as an example of one of the things that could be done. Peter comes to our meeting. He's all gung-ho. He goes back and he gives an interview and he says, we got to start something like that in Baltimore. Right. And I remember what happened. He said, we, and people said, well, that must mean the Schmoke administration, when, when Peter was actually talking about we, the city of Baltimore and the universities here. And I remember you had to rope them in and pull them back. So yeah. even at that point, it was tricky, huh? It was uh, still sensitive. And what I said to Peter was that it's taken us a long time from 1988 to 1998 to get people to agree with us that there needs to be drug policy reform. But Baltimore had a long history after World War II with heroin. And mm -hmm. uh, it was older people. It was uh, some older criminal gangs, really, that had died out over time. But there was still among uh, older voters a uh, recollection about heroin. And I just said, Peter, you're getting ahead of me and that uh, people who were starting to be supportive of the direction that we're moving in will stop and, and, and either reverse course or at least uh, won't let us continue uh, mm -hmm. our efforts uh, because uh, heroin scares them. And that's what I said. So, yeah, that uh, I, I did have my... Uh, a finger in the wind sometimes on political issues. Uh, I'll yeah. admit that. That um, well, I, I, I that didn't blame you concern. for it then. Yeah. I got it. I mean, it was really something that Johns Hopkins or University of Maryland should have been doing. And even in Europe, it had started off not with mayors taking the lead, but oftentimes with research institutions and such doing those trials first before it ever became a real policy. Yeah, I was you very know? fortunate to have uh, great health institutions. Johns Hopkins School of Public Health um, really did a wonderful job in studying our needle exchange program because, as you know, at the time, the federal government still had a law that prevented institutions that were receiving federal dollars uh, from uh, running needle exchange programs. But they, they were the group that did the study. And uh, after the pilot period, which was a four-year uh, period, uh, we were able to go to the legislature with the Hopkins uh, School mm -hmm. of Public Health uh, data and show them the dramatic impact of reducing the uh, spread of AIDS and not increasing the number of uh, drug uh, or uh, intravenous drug users. And so uh, they uh, passed uh, legislation allowing us to continue the needle exchange program. And I think it's important for people to mm -hmm. know that when we got the pilot program, we were able to get it with uh, 
just uh, one vote that made the difference uh, there um, in in the legislature. When mm-hmm. we went back after four years, uh, everybody voted for us except for one person. So um, it was a dramatic change no, it, it based, really on, was. Uh, based on applied research. I remember the Congressional Black Caucus that, you know, one year is calling a needle exchange genocide or something, and a few years later is calling for the resignation of the drugs are if he won't support needle exchange. Yep. So you did see that major transition in the 90s. One thing you may not know, Kurt, is that even back when you were mayor, Johns Hopkins, together with Columbia University in New York and Wayne State in uh, Detroit, were three universities in America that actually were giving heroin to people in their research trials. They mm-hmm. had gotten permission from the DEA to import it from Europe. They were they were paying people who were illicit drug heroin users to come live at a clinic for a few weeks and then be tested for what heroin was doing to them. So in some respects, you know, all of the obstacles about giving heroin to human subjects, about importing it, had been resolved. It was just the idea of doing an experiment where it wasn't just to evaluate the impact of heroin on the human body, but to see if a maintenance trial could actually help people stabilize their lives in the way that it was clearly working in Europe, that was the really difficult uh, thing to cross. And it's something that no American university to this day has done, even as it's become standard operating procedure in half a dozen European countries and, and Canada. You know, so anyway, listen, let's go back to the political thing here. You know, I remember like thinking, okay, well, maybe and people were saying you've cut off your chances for statewide office here. Um, But I remember just wishing you had a senator, Senator Sarbanes, who was a respected senator, but he wasn't lighting the place on fire and just wishing that he would retire so that you <laughs> could run for Senate. Because, I mean, I was among a huge number of people who thought you would have made a fantastic member of the U.S. Senate. I mean, how much did you entertain that possibility back then? The Senate was the only office that, beyond the mayor uh, that I uh, contemplated pursuing. I, I spent some time in 1994 uh, when there was an open governor's seat uh, in Maryland, uh, my wife and I went around throughout the state, just taking a look at the issues that the governor has to deal with. But I decided, uh, no, that's not what I wanted to pursue. That if I have an opportunity, I would like to become involved in setting national policies, and of course, drug policy being uh, one of them. So um, my um, last election was 1995, so I was leaving office in December of 1999. And I thought that there was a possibility that Senator Sarbanes was not going to run again. And the the next Senate race was 2000. But then he decided uh, to do another term. And so that's when I decided to pursue uh, some other interest that I had in in the academy. And uh, fortunately, I was able, after a brief stint in a law firm, to uh, get the job as dean of the Howard University School of Law. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. 
So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. You fast forward in the years 2000, and there was some meeting of mayors at the White House with Bill Clinton. Right. And one of the other mayors who was there was a real drug warrior, Richard Daly, the yep. son of the other famous Daly, you know, the Daly family that kind of ran Chicago for a big chunk of the 20th century. And I think you raised a little contrary viewpoint there. I was wondering what got into you because you weren't talking quite as much about the drug issue at that point. I mean, your frame had really been, I want to make Baltimore the city that reads. You wanted to make literacy your real focus. You wanted to really put that out front. But nonetheless, what got into you there? Again, what was happening uh, was uh, m- a lack of debate, <laughs> really, about mm-hmm. what was going on. And so we had a, a moment there. It was a little luncheon, and uh, Mayor Daley made a comment to President Clinton. And then I raised my hand, and uh, I said, uh, Mr. President, do you realize that this conference is being sponsored by a, um, a tobacco company. And uh, you should have seen the look on Mayor Daly's face when I said <laughs> that. But president just looked at me and I said, I raised that because of the fact that you have done an outstanding job uh, over the last few years in reducing the level, uh, the number of people who smoke in the United States. And you've done that using public health uh, strategies. I said, uh, sir, if I'm standing here in in my left hand holding a a green leafy substance that your CDC says killed 400,000 people um, last year, and in my right hand is a green leafy substance that there are no known deaths from smoking that, which one do you think ought to be criminalized? (laughs) And... um, he just kept looking at me. And uh, so I, you know, which is, okay, smoke, keep talking and then sit down. Um, so I said, of course, the left hand uh, has tobacco, which has killed 400,000 people a, a year. And the right hand is marijuana, uh, which no known deaths from smoking. So I said, sir, I just urge you to consider using the public health strategies that have been so effective with the tobacco to use that rather than criminal justice on the marijuana. He finally got up to speak and started the launching into a discussion about his brother, Roger, I believe his name was, who uh-huh. did go to jail. Bill Clinton's uh, brother. Bill Clinton's yeah. brother, Ro- Roger, that uh, yeah. went to jail because of a drug charge. And he believed that that drug sentence actually saved his life. But, you know, so it was it was a, a very political response. Of course, I don't th- nobody expected me to speak at that time. I wasn't <laughs> on the program to speak, but I was just prompted uh, because of the fact that, um, you know, it was just ironic that we, there we were at a conference uh, dealing with substance abuse and it was sponsored by a tobacco company. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no kidding. Clinton, I think he really wanted to do the right thing in those first six months in office. And then I think he looked at members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, 
And they basically weren't going for it. I think they said, hey, you have anybody told us, don't let the Democrats get outflanked by the Republicans on being tough on drugs and tough on crime. Well, let me ask you, maybe this is a bit of a sore subject, but uh, your successor, I believe, is mayor, who then became governor, was Martin O'Malley, Mm -hmm. and who tried to run for president. And I will say I was no fan of him. I remember there was time when he was governor and he had promised people in the legislature he would sign some very moderate sentencing reform bill. And at the last minute, he basically broke his promise, I think persuaded by a bunch of prosecutors he had hired as his chief aides. But what was your relationship like with good old Martin O'Malley? Well, uh, we didn't really talk uh, a great deal about policy matters. I tried to give him a a very good transition. I did a report for him that he could kind of follow the um, policy developments easily in the city. But to a great extent, he ran for office criticizing uh, my approach to public safety and specifically focused on our police commissioner, a guy named Tom Frazier. So um, there really <laughs> wasn't much to talk about, Ethan, and mm-hmm. that, that uh, first term. It was later when he started making, you know, indicating that he definitely was going to run for president, that we had uh, good conversations about uh, policy. But uh-huh. uh, during his first term as mayor, uh, we hardly spoke. So, Kurt, if you were writing a memoir, uh, what illicit drug use would you be admitting to? Uh, other than hashish at the time, yeah. um, when I was a student at Oxford, uh, that uh-huh. that would be about it. Uh-huh. So only outside the country, a little like William Buckley uh, <laughs> on his infamous sailboat, you know, off the coast, yeah. you know, so he wasn't an American jurisdiction. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, well, and listen, around those early 2000s, this TV show comes out, The Wire, which at the time, it never won an Emmy, but it's since gone down in history as one of America's greatest television shows. David Simon, you know, the creator and somebody who was a guest on this podcast and referred to you as sort of a, you know, a prophet before your times, or maybe that, I guess a prophet is always before their times, yeah. but um, some some language like that. But what did you think of The Wire? No, I, I really thought it was a, an excellent show. Uh, I know my successor hated it, thought that it just put Baltimore in such a bad light. But I thought what David and uh, Ed Burns, who was his um, you know, co-creator, uh, mm-hmm. former policeman, that they were trying to say to the country, um, this is a really complex uh, problem. Yes, it's in this city, but we're really not focused on Baltimore. We're focused on the drug issue. So I took it uh, that way. I knew it was a very popular show in Europe because I I was asked once to write an article for The Guardian comparing the real Baltimore to The Wire, which I did. But I know for many, many people in our city, they started to not have a lot of pride in that show because when they left town and go and would go visit people, all they would talk about related to Baltimore was the wire. So it did have somewhat of a negative impact as it related to our tourism industry, but I thought it was a very important uh, show. And I appeared on it a couple of times because, as you know, David had a little impish sense of humor. So he had me uh, as the health commissioner to the mayor. I played the health commissioner to the mayor, for which I had to join the Screen Actors Guild. So I'm a union member. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think also you had a line in there, right? It was Charlie Rangel back in the day in 1988 had called you the most dangerous man in America. And I think one of your lines was the the guy playing the mayor while you're playing health commissioner, uh, you know, has this little there's this little police experiment, Hamsterdam, a kind of needle park in Baltimore. And and your line to him was to the mayor was better watch out, Clarence, will be calling you the most dangerous man in America. That's right. <laughs> I got a kick out of that little play on Charlie Wrangell's assault on you there. Yeah. I think you also made the point that it was a you know, excellent, fantastic TV show, but that people, you know, should no more assume that was a real life depiction of all of Baltimore than they would watch The Sopranos and imagine that was a real life depiction of all of New Jersey. Yeah. And the earlier uh, show that David did, uh, Homicide, Life in the Streets, had a scene in which the uh, uh, actor, comedian uh, Robin Williams 
played a tourist to Baltimore along with his wife, and they were going to a baseball game, and uh, the wife gets shot in the TV show. Mm-hmm. And I was mayor at the time, uh, and our phones just get rang off the hook. The people thought that there had been a murder uh, at Oreo Park. And um, so, yeah, sometimes uh, those TV shows uh, get a little close to um, uh, a reality yeah. there. So Yeah, no, exactly. Well, look, just to jump for more, more recent years, I mean, for our listeners to know, you know, Kurt stayed involved. He joined the board of the Drug Policy Foundation. When then that merged with my organization, the 90s Linus Smith Center to Create Drug Policy Alliance, Kurt stayed on the board of directors for many years, uh, remained a major commitment. When he stepped off, he joined the honorary board. Uh, the organization now has an award that is jointly named for him and another uh, leader for accomplishment in the field of law. So, I mean, Kurt will be forever associated with this. Now, the last time we saw one another, it's very vivid for me, it was January 2017, five years ago. It was the day before I was about to tell my board that I was stepping down as executive director. And the chairman of the board, Ira Glasser, we had agreed, you know, we've been playing this out for five months. We kept it very secret. But there you were. I hadn't seen you in a year or two. We're having a two-hour coffee one morning. And I remember confiding in you. You were the only one of the only people I knew uh, who I had told beforehand, having been sworn to secrecy. We haven't seen each other since that time. But a couple years ago, I get a phone call from my buddy Rick Doblin the head of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Associated Psychedelic Studies, which is leading the way on the legalization of MDMA for PTSD. Ethan, can you introduce me to Kurt Schmoke? Well, <laughs> what's it. that about? Well, there's this fellow named Bob Parsons. So I organized a conference call, and you and Rick Doblin and I had a very nice call. And just say a little something about Bob Parsons and uh, what, if anything, has come of that. Well, Bob Parsons, uh, people will know his company, but he, he's a, a co-founder of the internet domain uh, uh, company, GoDaddy. Uh, Bob is from Baltimore. He's a graduate of the University of, uh, of Baltimore, and uh, he uh, was um, uh, a Marine, Vietnam a veteran, who has overcome an awful lot because of that experience uh, in Vietnam and has uh, been a proponent of uh, psychedelics and the treatment of PTSD. And uh, Bob has continued to be a very strong supporter of our University of Baltimore, uh, asked me to meet and to see if any of our professors would be interested in um, research in that area. And uh, they are, and, and so uh, we have uh, some research going on at the University of Baltimore, but we're looking into it and mm-hmm. um, working um, uh, with uh, Rick and uh, at the request of, uh, of Bob Parsons, who is a very strong supporter of this. Uh, I, th- I think that's great, Kurt. I mean, Rick yep. may also mention that some of your faculty and students have actually gone through the MAPS training that's so that right. they can become psychedelic-assisted psychotherapists when, in fact, the FDA approves this treatment, hopefully, uh, I guess, if not the end of this year, then sometimes next year. So there's no fully escaping your attachment <laughs> and connection right. to this issue. Um, but, Kurt, I, I just have to say, I mean, I've loved this kind of romp down through memory lane, but I think that okay. what you did was really, truly did make history. And it really is. I mean, I know I embarrass you by saying this, but, you know, I stood up at this conference in Baltimore in front of hundreds of people uh, just recently, and I said, you know, I think about my heroes. You know, we th- you know I have the same famous heroes many people do. So, you know, you know, you know, Mar- Martin Luther King and, and Nelson Mandela and uh, Vaclav Havel, you know, the famous Czech playwright mm-hmm. and first president. Um, but I put Kurt Schmoke in that group simply because what he did in stepping out and sticking to his guns back at a time of mass national hysteria. You know, it's like you look at the one person who voted against the Vietnam War back in the day, the one person who voted against the, you know, invasion of Iraq or whatever. I mean, what you did had a moral equivalence to that. You know, bless you and thank you for the courageous leadership that you showed on that and also for the partnership that we had for so many years. Well, thank you, Ethan. It's uh, great talking to you. And uh, as I've said to people many times, you know, without your uh, writing and and research, which uh, I I felt as though I was just an ambassador for some of your ideas and uh, very fortunate um, to uh, connect with you and uh, uh, connect with the organizations that are bringing about yeah. reform. 
Uh, well, I oftentimes wonder, my life might have been quite different, but for your stepping out the way you did and a adding an element of real-world political legitimacy to it, I don't know that this thing would have taken off, you know, either in my own personal life or more broadly. So, no, it really was historically of great significance. So, thank you ever so much, Kurt, for joining me and my listeners on Psychoactive. All the best to you. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with the award-winning journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker Martin Torgoff about his book, Bop Apocalypse, Jazz, Race, the Beats, and Drugs. One of the misconceptions that, you know, people have about heroin and jazz is that these guys would shoot dope, get on the stand, and, like, be high out of their minds and play. No, that's not what was going on. What was going on was that this drug, which had created this metabolic need for it was being satisfied and so that's what would allow them the kind of stability to be anchored you know back again in their music subscribe to psychoactive now so you don't miss it i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.